Welcome back to this week's episode of The Emily Show. I have been asked quite a bit if I was going to cover any of the civil suit regarding Prince Andrew. And today is the day that we are going to be talking about it, mostly because there's a ruling out of the court that is helpful to break down. And then he was stripped of his titles and patronages. And did I say that horribly weird? Sorry to all of my beloved UK audience and other Commonwealth Commonwealth audiences around this fair globe. Um, I am hopelessly American sometimes, and I will do my best to break it down. Look, all of my understanding of British life comes from not only the, um, the crown <laughs> and the clash, but yeah, that, no, that's about it. <laughs> and to those of you uh, in my audience that are British and share your experiences with me. So with that said, I am going to be breaking down the court's latest ruling, the road ahead, because this latest ruling, though the headlines have made this like, ah, it's a huge deal. I want to tamper that a little bit because though it is a significant ruling, it by no means forestalls the lengthy legal battles to come. And I want to make sure that we as law nerds have a realistic perspective of the road next, because that's part of breaking down this ruling. It's not like, all right, go into trial. He's totally hosed. Nope. There's a lot that I've read into this uh, pretty lengthy ruling from the court. A The court made clear their opinions on a few things, which is I'm living for. And the queen, it seems, have made has made her opinion clear by returning all of his titles back to the crown. So we also have some statements from the lawyers involved in this case that have come out since this court ruling, and we should just get into it. I'm going to do a brief kind of timeline of where we're at. So for those of you that haven't been following this story super closely, hopefully it will give a minimal amount of background to understand this court ruling. For those of you that have been following this very in-depth, hopefully we can just scoot through what you already know and get into breaking down this ruling. But before we roll the intro and get all the way into it, I want to take a moment to thank those of you that have been leaving such tremendous reviews over on iTunes and on Spotify and in whatever country you are in. So I'm going to read some of the ones, not just from the U.S., because I can see the international ones, but I know that when you go into Apple Podcasts, you can only see the reviews in your country. So our first one comes from the U.S., from Book 56837, which shares that it is easy to understand and says she breaks things down in a way, making the situation easy to understand, open, honest, and funny. Thank you so much for that review. And coming out of Great Britain, the title simply says brilliant, which feels so British to me. So thank you. Brilliant. Love Emily shows breaking down the legal stuff in a really good way with hilarious moments too. I think the hilarious moments today might come from the judge sass, but you know how we live for a good judicial sass. There's some sassy footnotes. There are some extensive footnotes. But for those of you watching on YouTube, you will get to see there is one page that has like three sentences at the top of the page and the rest of the page is a footnote, which is insane. And for those of you listening, I will break down what is said in this ruling. So now it is time to just get into it. 
Hey there, welcome to The Emily Show. I'm your host, Emily D. Baker, badass lawyer and everyone's favorite legal commentator, breaking down the legal shit in the news and pop culture stories you want to talk about. I've been a licensed attorney for over 15 years, I'm a former prosecutor, and I'm a big fan of the cursey words. So let's break it down. Today's Emily Show is sponsored by Green Chef. Green Chef is a CCOF certified meal kit company, and Green Chef makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle, which is something I really enjoy about Green Chef. Not only is it delivered to your door, the meals are convenient and easy to put together. They come with a whole breakdown of the recipe with simple steps that you just follow along and put together at home. It comes with just the right amount of ingredients to make your meals so that you can try new things, but it also meets a wide variety of specialty diets. So whether you are just looking for balanced meal or you're like, it's January, we need to make some changes. Green Chef specialty diets can let you try out some diets that you might not have otherwise tried. They have vegan options, vegetarian options, keto and paleo options, fast and fit Mediterranean and gluten-free. So if you've always wanted to try keto, well, Green Chef's the only keto meal kit on the market. You can give it a try and see if you feel good eating that way. Not only that, but it's fun to do and the meals are delicious. Did I mention they're delivered to your door so you don't have to like go anywhere? (laughs) It's fantastic. If you're ready to try Green Chef, go to greenchef.com slash emilybaker130 and use code emilybaker130 to get $130 off and free shipping. You heard that correctly. Go to greenchef.com slash emilybaker130 and use code emilybaker130 to get $130 off plus free shipping. Go ahead and find out for yourself why Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well. And let me know on social what meals you've tried. I can't wait to see how you like it. But we should get back into today's episode. I have to just take a minute to say again how much I appreciate the sponsors on the show and how much I appreciate all of you that have joined me over in the Law Nerds community, which is a Patreon site with the members-only podcast, I Have Thoughts, which is my thoughts about the stories that we cover here and uh, a deeper dive and behind the scenes. We also get to have conversation over there around the episodes and different posts and the members-only live streams that we do once a month and quarterly Zoom calls with me, depending on which level you pick. But it allows me to remain independent media where I can share my, really my honest breakdown without worry that it is conflicting with somebody else's point of view. I am internally consistent, but I have questions. And being an independent podcast allows me to continue to bring those questions. And I am so thankful for all of our sponsors and for all of you law nerds that help support this independent podcast because I think independent media is tremendously important without being beholden to either a boss, a corporate interest, a a platform. I get to be a little bit more agnostic and that is fantastic. So as we're getting into today's episode, it's time for a timeline breakdown. It's time for a breakdown. Never gonna, never gonna get it. Not an appropriate song for this type of case, Emily. But my brain goes to music first. And 
Now it's time for a breakdown. That's where the brain goes, but it is time for a breakdown. The timeline here is hopefully helpful. And I have heard Virginia uh, Gouffray's name pronounced both Gouffray and Guffrey. I do not mean to interchange between the two, though I may. Um, and that is not meant with disrespect. It is just, I have heard it pronounced both ways. So in my brain, I have no no concept of which way is proper. So we're just, it, you've saw, you saw this all with me trying to pronounce uh, Galen, Galen, Jolene, Maxwell's name as well. So with that, this all really popped up in December, 2014, because there was a filing in an underlying Florida case with regard to Virginia Guffrey describing that she was trafficked to Prince Andrew for intercourse on at least three occasions. And that was really where this started to come to light. In the U.S., most court documents are public record, which means they are accessible by the public for viewing for commentary, for discussion. Sometimes documents are sealed. Sometimes they are not. Sometimes they are sealed and then unsealed, which did happen with some of uh, Guffrey's documentation with regard to older lawsuits um, that the documents were originally sealed and then were unsealed later on. So with that, you started seeing more discussion about who some of the I don't know, clients of Epstein's criminal sexual enterprise were. Who were the other individuals that these girls were being trafficked for? Because nobody believes they were all just being trafficked for Epstein. And you guys are like, Emily, you didn't say alleged. No, because Maxwell's been convicted. A jury found that there was, in fact, a conspiracy here with regard to the trafficking. And while it was alleged against Epstein and he has since passed, he was also convicted of procuring underage girls for uh, prostitution in Florida. So he is also a convicted sex offender, though was not convicted on the charges that came against him and Maxwell because of his death. So no, I'm not saying alleged. There was trafficking going on. There was a larger trafficking enterprise going on. And Virginia Guffrey started naming names, which I can imagine has been tremendously stressful, terrifying, and difficult because this has gone on not just for the years that this happened to her when she was under the age of 18, but this is now taken up, it seems, to be the bulk of her adult life, which for those who have you know, experienced and survived trauma, it never goes away. But it's also, she is going through this in court case after court case after court case to bring her story into court and to go after those who did this to her. In that underlying Florida case, attorney Alan Dershowitz filed a lawsuit against Virginia Guffrey to have his name essentially removed from what was going on in that underlying Florida case that settled out of court. The reason I bring it up is because it will come up in this court's ruling. So I think having the timeline for it helps then in, because it's going to come up with the 2009 settlement. And we are going to talk a lot about that settlement as it's the basis for a lot of Prince Andrew's attorney's arguments. And when I say 
Prince Andrew's arguments versus his attorney's arguments. I will interchange both of those two. He's making all of these arguments through his attorney. The only real statement we have from him on this is an interview that we will talk about in just a moment. In 2015, Virginia Guffrey sues Maxwell for defamation. In 2017, the defamation lawsuit settles. On In October 2019, there is a interview with Virginia Guffrey with the BBC, but that didn't air until December 2nd, 2019. In November of 2019, the BBC interview with Prince Andrew aired, and I will put the links down below to that interview. Go watch it for yourself. I would be very curious about your thoughts on it. The interview is fairly disastrous, I think. I don't think it helps. Again, I have very rarely seen interviews where I'm like, oh, that helped. That made that made a difference for you. That swayed things in a positive direction for you. Watching the Prince Andrew interview after I've been watching a lot of the Baldwin interviews was so interesting because you know what Prince Andrew says in several parts of this interview? He goes, no, 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 no. And I was like, what? What is this? Stop. I, I don't think in my life I've ever looked at somebody and been like, no, 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 no. That's just, that's just not, that's just preposterous. It's wild to me. So after watching the interviews with Alec Baldwin and then going back and watching the Prince Andrew interview, I was kind of blown away by some of the little, the little things that I thought were similar in the way they were talking about their very different um, criminal, well, it's not a criminal case with regard to Prince Andrew, but the very different situations that they find themselves in, I guess, is the gentle way to say that. So if you have not watched that BBC interview, it is quite interesting. But in that interview, Prince Andrew essentially denies and and has continued to vehemently deny any of these allegations. There is a picture of Prince Andrew with Virginia Guffrey. I found it to be very interesting the way he didn't say that he thought that photograph was uh, faked or deep fake or photoshopped. But he did say, I wouldn't have been in clothes like that. Those are traveling clothes. I wouldn't have worn clothes like that in the UK. I wouldn't, he's like, I would have worn a suit. And I'm like, you're in pants and a long sleeve shirts. Isn't that just a suit without the jacket? Like I'm, maybe I'm lost. Is this, it, 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 it just, you just don't have a jacket? What? That he said he'd never been upstairs in Glenn Maxwell's house and that this photo was taken upstairs. And I'm sitting there going, well, if you've never been upstairs in her house, how do you know that that photo's from the upstairs of her house? Just questions that speak to my mind. He also says that he would never have had his hands around the waist of a young woman like that. I I am again paraphrasing. He wouldn't have had his hands like that, that being a member of the royal family, there is no PDA. There is, no, you know, no touching, no touching, no touching. And so that he would not have a photograph taken of him in that position and that photographs taken of him are exceedingly rare. So he wouldn't have done that. He also talks about Jeffrey Epstein not having a camera and some other things. It's a very, very interesting interview. And if you are just kind of picking up on this story now that um, the Maxwell case has, well, for we'll see, we'll see what happens next in court with the Maxwell case. But now that there has been a conviction in the Mac Maxwell case and the Epstein cases are resolved due to his passing, but not, I don't think, resolved in everyone's mind. So if you're just finding this, go check out that interview. In 2020, there was a Netflix documentary, Jeffrey Epstein, Filthy Rich, in which she gives some further information about 
um, Epstein and her experience. I have not yet watched that, but will be doing so. And if it changes my mind in any way, I will share that with you. And on the I Have Thoughts podcast in 2021, August 2021, Virginia Guffrey files this civil lawsuit that we are talking about. On October 29th, the motion to dismiss was filed by Prince Andrew. That's very common early stages. It's a 12B6 motion to dismiss. All of you are like, I've never been to law school, Emily, and I now know what a 12B6 motion to dismiss is. Yes, fails to state a claim. You all know we're all on the same page. And that's what this motion was. It was a motion to dismiss 12B6 insufficiency of the complaint. This didn't get into grounds of jurisdiction. It got somewhat into grounds of uh, the the potential allegation or the allegations potentially being time barred. But the court said those are those statute of limitations issues are affirmative defenses that aren't property to be brought here. And we'll get into that. On January 12th, 2022, the motion to dismiss was denied by the court in a very thorough court order that we are going through next. Since that happened, um, it's been made clear by David Boyce, Virginia Guffrey's lead counsel. Yes, David Boyce from Theranos, that same attorney. He stated that she didn't or he didn't believe that she was interested in just a financial settlement of this case, that any settlement of this case would need to come with um, kind of vindication of the claims that she brought. So I read into that statement. This is just my takeaway, what I thought that that meant. I think that what David Boyce is alluding to is that there will not be a settlement of this case without an admission of wrongdoing on the part of Prince Andrew. It's not that, oh, we've privately settled this matter and some amount of money exchanges between the parties. It's going to be a statement is issued and then other conditions of a settlement are made. And so I think as we get to talking about what comes next, please keep that in mind that this is not just seeking or a lawsuit seeking simply a financial settlement. Those are part of the claims that are made here. It's a civil lawsuit. You don't go to jail on a civil lawsuit. The damages are monetary. And the way that criminal cases are generally resolved is that the person goes to jail or prison because they are taken out of society due to um, either a, a need for rehabilitation or a need for protection of society at large. In civil cases, the way that the harm is made right is through money and sometimes through injunctions. You know, don't act this way, do act that way, things like that. But often, monetary damages are the remedy in civil lawsuits. And that is the remedy sought in this lawsuit. Do I think Prince Andrews should settle? We'll get to that later. After this ruling, Prince Andrews lawyers stated and in sum that based on what happened in court when they argued this motion before the judge and the questions the judge asked, they weren't surprised at this ruling. And I imagine that the judge asked them some pretty pointed questions based on the, the way that the judge worded things in this ruling but also that they reminded this was a marathon, not a sprint. The prince, of course, denies these allegations, and they will con continue uh, fighting these allegations. So in saying that, all lawsuits are allegations in shade, and the lawyers here are tasked with doing what is in the best interest of their client. So as I read what some of the defense argue uh, arguments are. Um, I will be talking about the legality of those arguments. And I think some of you may listen and go, 
ugh, I hate that they're arguing that. I completely understand the emotional response to being like, who argues this? How do you do this? Why are you arguing this? It's their job. It's their job. It's their job. This is their job to argue for the best interests of their client, Prince Andrew. And the interesting thing about this motion to dismiss is you are going to see um, Prince Andrew almost arguing against his own best interest. And the reason that that's happening in this motion is because he is essentially arguing that he could have been a defendant when the settlement agreement was reached between uh, Gouffre and Epstein. So he's arguing against his interest saying, but I could have been included in that group because he wants to be included in that settlement and therefore excluded from the narrative now and excluded from the civil litigation now. But the court has denied that argument for now. It doesn't mean we're done hearing about this 2009 settlement agreement. We're going to hear quite a lot about it as we get into this ruling. But first, let's thank our sponsor. This week's episode of The Emily Show is sponsored by Beta Brand. It is January 2022, and there's a lot of things that have gone on over the last two years. And it's okay to be like, look, this is the year that I am just not accepting pants that aren't comfortable. I'm just not, I'm just not doing it. I'm just not doing it. I have to maybe sometimes look like I'm not wearing yoga pants. And if I have to look like I'm not wearing yoga pants. I might as well just wear pants that are yoga pants, but don't look like yoga pants that look like work pants and have pockets. You heard me right. Beta Brands dress yoga pants are designed with the fit and flexibility of yoga pants, but they look like polished dress pants. They are soft, comfy, perfectly stretchy, and stay wrinkle-free. Yeah. It makes them really easy. I have loved seeing all of your photos on social media as you are discovering for yourself how great Beta Brand pants are. If you want to try them for yourself or you're just ready to get another pair in a different color or style or you want to try their denim, yes, they have yoga denim. I kid you not, I love mine. You can go ahead and try them right now for 30% off your Beta Brand order when you go to betabrand.com slash Emily. That's B-E-T-A-B-R-A-N-D.com slash Emily for 30% off your order for a limited time. Make sure to use the special URL for the show because it does support the Emily show and it lets our sponsor know that that traffic is coming from us. Find out why women are buying five different pairs of these pants and go to betabrand.com slash Emily today for 30% off. I can't wait to see what you choose for yourself. Show me on social at the Emily D Baker. And with that, we should get back into the episode. All right, let's get into this opinion. It is 46 pages long and we are going to hit the highlights, not every single detail of it, but it is a really great opinion. I really like the way it was written. And when I say great, I don't mean I don't mean it was like, yay, I'm rooting for one side versus the other. That's my personal opinion, but I mean it was a thorough, well-written the breakdowns of the law are so clear. It was a very, very well done. It was a very, very well done opinion. And I, I appreciate that. Not that I don't think all federal judges do a good job, but some, I enjoy their writing more than others. So, and you, look, 
I'm going to be more inclined to find it to be a great opinion when there's a little bit of shade. (laughs) I just am. I live for it. I love it. I like the cheese bag. I like the shade. I'm not ashamed at all. So in the matter of Virginia L. Guffrey against Prince of Andrew, Prince of Andrew, Prince Andrew, Duke of York in his personal capacity, also known as Andrew Albert Christian Edward opinion. There's a very extensive table of contents for those of you watching, watching for those of you listening on the podcast, you can't see, but the, the table of contents is, is extreme. And I should give a note of warning. This will talk about the sex trafficking scheme of uh, Epstein. This will talk some about those allegations. There is not a ton of graphic detail in this, but for those of you that find that this subject matter is difficult, this opinion will get into those topics in a fairly broad and more general matter, not in a highly graphic manner, but it is the, the entire lawsuit is based on the fact that Virginia was a victim of the Epstein trafficking scheme and is now suing Andrew for being one of the uh, individuals that was taking advantage of what Epstein was doing. And therefore there's these two claims of battery and intentional infliction of emotional distress. Just by way of disclaimer, as we get into this. So Lewis, a Kaplan district judge says plaintiff Virginia Roberts Guffrey brings this action against defendant Prince Andrew Duke of York for battery and intentional infliction of emotional distress. In short, she alleges that the late Epstein and others trafficked her to Prince Andrew, who took advantage of the situation by sexually abusing her when she was under the age of 18. Defendant denies Guffrey's allegations and attacks her credibility and motives. He asserts that she was complicit in Epstein's unlawful activities. Remember what I said earlier? I'm with you. I Look, this is part of why it is so hard for victims to come forward, because this is what they face. The lawyers are attacking her credibility and motives and arguing that she was complicit in Epstein's sex trafficking empire, essentially saying that she was a willing participant. They are lawyers doing their job. We're all going to take a deep breath and be like, I'm so glad I'm not one of Prince Andrew's lawyers. Let's all just be thankful that in our lives, we do not have to make these arguments with a straight face in court. But this is a motion to dismiss. The court continues. Miss Guffrey's complaint is legally I've read that awkwardly and now it doesn't make sense, but this is a motion to dismiss Ms. Guffrey's complaint as legally insufficient, not to determine the truth or falsity of charges in her complaint. And defendant relies mainly, although not exclusively, on a 2009 agreement between Guffrey and Epstein that settled a different lawsuit between Guffrey and Epstein. That defendant now argues releases him from any liability to Guffrey. So that was a different civil suit that was settled in this way. The fact that defendant has brought the matter before the court on a motion to dismiss the complaint as legally insufficient is the, is of central importance. As is well known to lawyers, but perhaps not known to the lay public, the legal muggles of it all, I like that the court breaks this down understanding that this is a high-profile case 
and with the awareness that this will be reported on by lots that do not have legal training and make sure that it is clear what the standard is here and what this motion is for. This is a motion to dismiss that the complaint is legally insufficient. The complaint on its face cannot stand. And well, we'll get into why this doesn't evaluate the truth. Let me let the court explain it. Emily, just keep reading. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. The court goes on to say by making this motion placed upon the court an unyielding duty to assume for the purposes of this motion only the truth of all of plaintiff's allegations and to draw in plaintiff's favor all inferences that reasonably may be drawn from those allegations. In consequence, the law prohibits the court from considering at this stage of the proceedings defendant's efforts to cast doubt on the truth of Guffrey's allegations, even though his efforts would be permissible at trial. Yo. Counsel, this is a 12B6. When you make a motion to dismiss, all the inferences go in favor of the plaintiff. The defendant has to argue even if, even if every single word of this complaint is true, it still cannot stand because X, Y, Z. Not, well, your honor, we know she said, but she's not credible. That's not a motion to dismiss. That gets into affirmative defenses, which is not what the court is here on this day to decide. In a similar vein and for similar reasons, it is not open to the court now to decide, now to decide. As a matter of fact, just what the parties in the release in the 2009 settlement agreement signed by Guffrey and Epstein actually meant as will appear more fully below, the court's job at this juncture is simply to determine whether there are two or more reasonable interpretations of that document. If there are, and there are, the determination of the, quote, right or controlling interpretation must await further proceedings. And that gives you an idea of where the court is going with this. The 2009 document, we will talk about it in a bit, and we will talk about parts of it as well. The court has said, look, that's another proceeding. I'm just here to see if there's sufficiency of this, of this complaint. I'm not here to interpret if there are more than one reasonable interpretations, I am not here to decide which one is right and which one is wrong. I'm not here to be the finder of fact. Ultimately, when a case goes to trial, the finder of fact is generally the jury, unless it is a bench trial in front of just a judge, and then the finder of fact is the judge. It would be interesting. I don't think Prince Andrew wants this to go to a jury. I can imagine that Virginia would want this to go before a jury, not a court, and they get to determine that. So away we go. They get into the facts of this case, and I'm not going to get through the facts as in-depth as the court does because the facts alleged are essentially that Epstein was um, operating a sex trafficking scheme and in that he was trafficking girls, including uh, the plaintiff here, Virginia Guffrey, to Epstein and others, others including. Prince Andrew, as alleged here. In the facts section, they go on to talk about Prince Andrew's relationship with both Epstein and Maxwell. And the court says, 
According to Muscoffrey's complaint, the defendant first met Epstein in 1999 through the former's close friend, Ghislaine Maxwell. And that lines up squarely with the interview that Prince Andrew gave to the BBC in 2019, where he says the only reason he met Epstein is because he was so close with Maxwell. I think that that part of the interview, and it's multiple times in the interview where Prince Andrew tries to distance himself from Epstein and align himself with Maxwell, saying that they were the ones who were really friends, and Epstein just was connected to Maxwell, so they he kind of toted along. I think in light of the Maxwell conviction, maybe that aged like milk. Over the next several years, the ruling goes on to say, the defendant traveled with Epstein and Maxwell on Epstein's private plane and was a guest at Epstein's numerous homes, including the private island in the Virgin Islands, Little St. James, and properties in Palm Beach and New York City. Epstein and Maxwell were guests at the defendant's 40th birthday party in 2000, as well as at a birthday party that the defendant threw for Maxwell in Sandringham. I I apologize if I butchered that name, United Kingdom in the same year. So he had her, he had Maxwell at Royal Properties in 2000, which is no news to the UK audience at all. They're like, we know, we don't like it. In 2006, one month after Florida state prosecutors charged Epstein with procuring a minor for prostitution, the defendant invited Epstein to the 18th birthday party of one of defendant's daughters. Let that sink in. I don't remember which princess it was who was turning 18 in 2006. He had been charged with procuring a minor for prostitution and went to the 18th birthday party of one of Prince Andrew's daughters. As recently as 2010, and therefore after Epstein had done jail time in connection with the 2006 Florida charges as a registered sex offender, defendant was photographed with Epstein and stayed at Epstein's New York City mansion. For more details on that, see Prince Andrew's interview with the BBC, because he does talk about it and seems to regret that trip the most. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The fact section goes on to talk about the way that... uh, Guffrey was recruited by plaintiff. I think that those facts are fairly well known now, but it started when Guffrey was 16 and working at Mar-a-Lago Club in Palm Beach. She was recruited to be a massage therapist with no massage training or history, and then was uh, groomed to engage in adult sexual acts for Epstein and with others and was on call for Epstein, for his, um, for, well, I'm just going to read what the court says. She was on call for Epstein for sexual purposes. Plaintiff on other occasions was lent out to other powerful men, including defendant. That is what she's alleging in this lawsuit. They go on to talk about defendant's alleged sexual abuse, and that is specific with regard to Prince Andrew, that The complaint alleges defendant sexually abused Guffrey when she was under the age of 18 years old. Defendant allegedly forced plaintiff to have sex with him against her will at Maxwell's home in London. And then they go through and talk about other um, incidences on a visit to Epstein's private island. Guffrey also alleges that defendant abused her at Epstein's mansion on the Upper East Side in Manhattan. During that particular encounter, Maxwell forced, quote, plaintiff, a child, and another victim to sit on Prince Andrew's lap as Prince Andrew touched her. They don't go into more detail on that, 
but they do talk about that in relation to the battery claim later. They talk about the Florida state prosecution and the federal non-prosecution agreement, which is something I hadn't looked at deeply before going through this ruling because I had I really had not looked into what happened in Florida all that much. The ruling goes on to say, at this point, it's helpful and appropriate to refer to facts not alleged in the complaint in the case, but of which the court takes judicial notice because they are surrounding events from another case. In July 2006, a Florida state grand jury indicted Epstein in a state court on a single count of felony solicitation of prostitution. As will appear, that charge remained pending until mid-2008. As previously noted, defendant's motion in this case relies heavily on the 2009 agreement between Epstein and Guffrey, which already is before the court as a matter of judicial notice. The 2009 agreement contains the following paragraph. Quote, first and second parties further stipulate and agree that this settlement agreement is pursuant to and is in fulfillment of Jeffrey Epstein's obligations to Virginia Roberts, um, Guffrey, pursuant to and in conformity with the non-prosecution agreement, its addendum and its affirmation between Epstein and the United States Attorney for the Southern District of Florida. The court goes on to say, thus, the terms of the non-prosecution agreement may shed light on the meaning of the 2009 agreement. The court, therefore, takes judicial notice of the non-prosecution agreement, its addendum, and affirmation. For present purposes, the following terms of the MPA, the non-prosecution agreement, are of possible interest here. Epstein agreed to plead guilty to the Florida state indictment and to a state information charging him with solicitation of minors to engage in prostitution. The U.S. Attorney's Office agreed to provide Epstein's attorneys, quote, with a list of individuals whom it had identified as victims and, quote, in consultation with and subject to the good faith approval of Epstein's counsel would select an attorney representative for these persons who would be paid for by Epstein. Epstein's lawyers could, quote, contact the identified individuals through that representative. So. What they're saying is that the prosecution identified victims. Epstein wanted to settle with those victims and presumably pay them to not prosecute him further with, you know, the more victims there are, the more time you were going to get in prison. And the U.S. attorneys were like, cool, you, Epstein, can pay for the lawyers of those victims and then those lawyers would represent them in deciding if they wanted to be a part of a non-prosecution agreement, because that's what it says. In consultation with and subject to the good faith approval of Epstein's counsel would select an attorney representative for these persons who would be paid for by Epstein. Epstein's lawyers could then contact the identified individuals through that representative. So a lawyer that doesn't represent Epstein, but is paid for by Epstein to contact the victims to be like, hey, if you would like not to prosecute Jeffrey Epstein, um, we can offer you money. How does that sound? Maybe you don't have to relive the worst things that have happened to you in front of a jury and not have your name in the media and we can just give you money and you can go away and then Epstein won't go to prison for longer. That's just my interpretation. They then 
go the court then goes on to say Epstein agreed that if one or more of the individuals whom the government had identified as victims elected to sue Epstein under 18 USC 2255 Epstein would not contest jurisdiction over him in the Florida federal court and he would waive his right to contest his liability in addition he would quote waive his right to contest damages up to an amount as agreed between the identified individual and Epstein so long as the identified individual elected to proceed exclusively under 18 USC 2255 and agreed to waive any other claim for damages. This is where that 2009 agreement comes in. Whether pursuant to state, federal, or common law, Epstein's waivers, however, would not apply to anyone who had not been identified by the government as a victim or having been so identified did not proceed exclusively under 18 USC 2255. So it's not forestalling all victims for coming forward and civilly suing Epstein, but it is forestalling those that choose to sue him under this section and choose to take a settlement. Part of the thought process here might be that these victims don't want to go through the court process, which is a very common and understandable position. They don't want to be named in public. And again, the world in 2009 was very different than the world now. Um, the way people viewed victims, particularly victims of sexual assault, is modernizing, but that was not always the case. And again, 2009 was a very different landscape for victims of sexual assaults. And the understanding of things like grooming was very much different as it goes to the general public who is going to sit on a jury. So I can also understand that there would be victims that would be like, look, you want me to go stand, you want me to go to trial and say all these things in public with my face? No, nope, don't want to do it. So this could be seen as giving victims an opportunity, or this could be seen as a way that the government is just letting Epstein off the hook with money. You can take away the interpretation that you like. I, I can see that both things could be possible and really both things could be true that the government is letting him off the hook, but also is protecting the victims who might really not want have wanted to testify. And this might've been the government's best way to proceed because Epstein said, if these Epstein agreed that if the victim sued him in court, he would not contest his liability. Look, I won't fight it. I'll just settle it. So it's, a bird in the hand almost if the victims choose to civilly sue him, that they would be able to reach a settlement and be paid on that settlement. The ruling goes on to explain that the U.S. Attorney's Office agreed that it would not prosecute Epstein nor, quote, institute any criminal charges against any potential co-conspirators of Epstein, including but not limited to four specifically identified persons if Epstein pleaded guilty to the Florida charges and otherwise discharged his obligations under the non-prosecution agreement. So he's also trying to protect Maxwell and others back in 2009. The non-prosecution agreement bears signatures dated variously in late September and mid-October 2007. Ms. Guffrey's complaint alleges that Epstein pled guilty to the Florida information in 2008. Ms. Guffrey's Florida suit against Epstein. In May 2009, while Epstein was incarcerated in Palm Beach County, Florida, as a result of his guilty plea to the Florida state charges, Guffrey sued Epstein in the U.S. District Court for Southern Florida under 18 U.S.C. 2255. I should take a moment and tell you what 18 U.S.C. 2255 is. I realize I have not done that. 
18 U.S.C. 2255 is the provision that allows for civil remedies for personal injuries so that any person, and as this, the code says, who was, while a minor, a victim of a violation, and it gives a large number of other sections that include um, assaultive sections and sexual assaultive sections, who suffers personal injury as a result of the violations, regardless of whether the injury occurred while the person was a minor may sue in any appropriate district court and shall recover the actual damages such person sustains or liquidated damages. And then it goes on to give statute of limitations, but it essentially allows for a civil remedy for personal injuries. And that is what, um, what particular code section. So it's a way to say, Hey, the victims who want to sue him can sue under this particular section, and then that can be settled and resolved. So that is what uh, Virginia Guffrey chose to do in 2009 and sued as a victim of Epstein's alleged federal sex trafficking, sexual exploitation, and child pornography offenses. Her complaint asserted that Epstein and Epstein's, quote, adult male peers, including royalty, politicians, academics, businessmen, and other professionals or personal acquaintances had sexually exploited her. Guffrey and Epstein entered into a into the 2009 agreement uh, entitled Settlement Agreement and General Release, pursuant to which Guffrey voluntarily dismissed her action against Epstein in exchange for $500,000. The defendant, Prince Andrew, now argues that Guffrey's claims against him are barred by the terms of that 2009 agreement. The Ruling then goes into detail the federal criminal case against Epstein and talks about the fact that he was charged in 2019 and arrested on July 8th, 2019, and then on August 10th, 2019, was found dead in his cell. The next section covers the 2009 agreement because the 2009 agreement is the crux of the defendant's motion. The court says it contains six and a fraction pages of substantive text consisting of nine labeled provisions, which are um, the agreement to dismiss the Florida case, a general release, additional covenants beyond the releasing language, a payment section, a confidentiality provision, covenants dealing with and maintaining Ms. Guffrey's anonymity, a no contact covenant, a provision relating to governing law and enforcement of the agreement, and a clause concerning attorney's fees, as well as a collection of miscellaneous provisions. The court says that a number of the provisions bear importance on the resolution of this motion and are discussed in detail below. The court lines out that the motion raises two pivotal issues regarding the 2009 agreement. Whether the 2009 agreement demonstrates that its releasing language in Section 2 unambiguously applies to the defendant, and if so, whether the defendant who is not a party nor mentioned in the agreement is entitled to invoke it. The court gets into the discussion. But before the court gets into the discussion, there is one little note where the court says the 2009 agreement is far from a model of clear and precise drafting. Your agreement is a mess. Both sides agree that Epstein and Guffrey agreed to its language. It must have meant something to them. But Guffrey and the defendant in this case disagree emphatically as to what it meant with respect to both issues. Can the agreement be invoked by a non-party to the agreement, Prince Andrew? And what did the agreement intend? Who did it intend to shield? The court 
gets into the discussion talking about 12B6 and what materials can be considered, saying that the court must draw all reasonable inferences in light most favorable to the plaintiff. The court says that the 2009 agreement neither appears in nor is referenced in the complaint, but the copy before the court is concedingly authentic. In its wording, as distinguished from its legal effect, is undisputed. So they agree that this is the agreement. They agree that this is what the agreement says. They don't agree on what it means. No one can agree on who this, who is covered by this agreement. The court then lays out the governing law saying that the 2009 agreement provides that it shall be governed by the laws of Florida. The court then gets into what the law of Florida says about contract interpretation from 2009. The court says that the basic principles of Florida law that govern the aspects of the party's dispute are clear. Unless contract language is unambiguous and free of conflicting inferences, ambiguity must be resolved as a question of fact. In other words, the court says, unless the terms of the agreement leave no reasonable doubt about the interpretation of the contracting parties, the ambiguity must be resolved by the trier of fact, ordinarily a trial jury. The court may not resolve any such ambiguity on a motion to dismiss the complaint. So the court is letting everyone know there is ambiguity here, but this is not the motion to do it. So the language that the court talks about is that. In section two, which occupies one and a half typewritten pages, the court says it contains, among other things, language by which the, quote, first parties, generally Guffrey and others, released the, quote, second parties, generally Epstein and others, and, quote, any other person or entity who could have been included as a potential defendant, parentheses, other potential defendants, and parentheses, from all and all manner of claims that said first parties ever had or may have against Epstein or other potential defendants. And this is the language that they are fighting over. Who are the other potential defendants? What does any other person or entity who could have been included as a potential defendant from all and all manner of claims that said first parties ever had or may have had against Epstein or other potential defendants. What does that mean? Is that clear and unambiguous? Uh, Cheat sheet, no. No, it's not. And the court lays out the law saying, we're not resolving that ambiguity here. We're going to explore what the parties are arguing. And this is where you see Prince Andrew's team arguing against his interest. He maintains that these charges uh, don't hold water, that these charges are not accurate and that he did not do these things. But then he also has to argue to the court for the purpose of this 2009 agreement that he could have been included as any other potential defendant. And because he could have been included as any other potential defendant, the 2009 agreement means Virginia Guffrey, who signed that agreement, cannot sue him. That's the argument. In beginning to resolve this question, the court says, if the plaintiff had wished to include someone else, anyone else as a defendant, she easily could have done so. Someone can be included as a defendant in a lawsuit simply by including that person's name in the caption of the complaint. Rather, defendant argues that he, quote, could have been included, end quote, as a, quote, potential defendant 
end quote, in the Florida case because Guffrey made reference to, quote, royalty in her Florida complaint, even though it did not name Prince Andrew as a defendant, nor even mention his name. Plaintiff then says they couldn't have sued Prince Andrew in 2009 because one, he was not subject to personal jurisdiction there. And in any case, the claims brought by plaintiff against Epstein in the Florida case were solely based on the 18 USC 2255, that civil remedy for harm, which created a federal cause, civil cause of action in favor of anyone who, while a minor, was injured as a consequence of a violation of any of several federal criminal statutes. As to the later, she contends that Prince Andrew would not have been sued or could not have been sued in the Florida case under any of the predicate statute because there was no basis for doing so. So the the statutes lined out in 2255, Guffrey's side is arguing, don't cover what Prince Andrew, she alleges, did to her. Prince Andrew says, no, I could have been a defendant, therefore you can't sue me now. The explanation that the court explores or one of the explanations that the court explores that I found most, I don't know, to be most likely in this interpretation was what was really meant by the parties in this 2009 agreement. And the court comes to the conclusion that there are multiple reasonable interpretations, but the court says, quote, in other words, a possible concern could have been that one, Miss Guffrey having settled with Epstein would sue someone else Two, who in turn might make a claim against Epstein based on a contention that Epstein should bear or at least contribute to any liability that person might have been found to have had to Miss Guffrey. Obtaining a release from Guffrey of claims against such a person, therefore, could eliminate the possibility of a claim over against Epstein. A claim over meaning almost like an indemnity release where you're saying, look, if you sue me, a contractor, and the work was done by subcontractor, I'm indemnified. You can't sue me. You have to sue them. So saying having Guffrey release liability against third parties would stop her from suing third parties that would then seek to also sue Epstein saying, he brought her here. I didn't know she wasn't willing. And then Epstein having to pay again because he would be potentially jointly and severably liable for the claims of that third party sued by Guffrey, which makes a lot of sense to me. The court goes on to say the goals of one in Miss Guffrey's position hypothetically could have been included getting as much money as she could for settling the case and keeping as much of her freedom to go after other alleged wrongdoers as she could uh, keep while still getting an acceptable sum of money, limiting the release language to persons who could have been sued in a particular court on a particular type of claim could secure that freedom to a substantial degree. So the goals of Epstein, the court's essentially justifying why this vague language might've been chosen. Maybe the, the parties specifically picked vague language so that Epstein would be protected from claim over and he would be protected from this almost uh, a third party claim saying, hey, I'm now getting sued for your behavior. You are partly responsible. And it might have been vague to allow Guffrey to sue others as she saw fit down the road. So not forestalling every lawsuit in the future for every harm that came based on the things that not just Epstein was involved in, but those that Epstein brought in were involved in. So the court is saying it could be that it's vague on purpose 
because it matched the goals of both parties. And in a release, matching the goals of both parties is kind of the point. The court goes on to say that there are additional considerations supporting the reasonableness of plaintiff Guffrey's interpretations of the phrase, quote, could have been included as defendant. For one thing, the uh, Florida court case was brought in federal court. The sole allegation based on federal jurisdiction was section 2255, which confers subject matter jurisdiction on federal courts only with respect to the claims based on alleged violations of certain federal criminal statutes. The complaint in the Florida case specifically alleged that Epstein had committed a number of such violations, but it nowhere alleges that this defendant committed any. The court goes on to say, it not clear that a claim, that should be it's, that's why it was so hard to read. It's not clear that a claim in the Florida case against this defendant would have been within the subject matter jurisdiction of the Florida court, even on a co-conspirator or supplemental jurisdiction theory. The court then says in a footnote, quote, Prince Andrew's assertion first made in his reply memorandum that Guffrey's complaint in this action, quote, alleged that Prince Andrew aided and abetted Epstein's federal sex trafficking crimes and was Epstein's co-conspirator in the alleged criminal enterprise as a proposition for which he cites eight specific paragraphs of the complaint cannot be taken at anything approaching base value. And this is again where you see Prince Andrew in his reply arguing against himself. Look, she's basically saying I was a co-conspirator, that I was part of a criminal enterprise. Therefore, I was, you know, excluded from being sued now. You can't sue me now. You can't. The court in wrapping up this part of their analysis goes on to say, the parties have articulated at least two reasonable interpretations of the critical language. The agreement, therefore, is ambiguous. Accordingly, the determination of the meaning of the release language in the 2009 agreement must await further proceedings. While the foregoing is dispositive of the defendant's motion to dismiss on the basis of the 2009 agreement, the court turns now to the other arguments for dismissal, which rest on independent grounds. Court made it very clear that we are not done hearing about the 2009 agreement and that other court proceedings might come up and likely will with regard to the language in this proceeding. The court also made very clear to the lawyers that there are these multiple levels of interpretation. I think that the most reasonable interpretations really were the courts saying it's most likely that Epstein was trying to make sure that if Guffrey sued someone else that could have been sued in that one case in Florida, the 2255 case, that he wouldn't then essentially also be sued by the person who got sued saying, well, you brought me into this. You're probably responsible. That logically makes sense to me. I don't think the lawyers for Prince Andrew are done fighting on this point. The court then goes into a traditional 12B6 analysis of the claims here. The court looks at whether the defendant's entitled to enforce the release as a third party and finds that the third party beneficiary in Florida cannot sue for its enforcement. And the court breaks down the agreement a bit more and supports that with quite a bit of case law and more information from the agreement. 
From that 2009 agreement, the court cites a provision that says, quote, the parties shall not provide any copy in whole or in part or in any form of this settlement agreement to any third party except to the extent required by law or rule or in response to a validly issued subpoena from a government or regulatory agency. Moreover, neither this settlement agreement nor any copy hereof nor the terms hereof shall be used nor disclosed in any court arbitration or other legal proceedings except to enforce the provisions of this settlement agreement. The court said so both Epstein and Guffrey were prohibited from providing all or part of the 2009 agreement, even to anyone who might have been among the persons possibly included within its releasing language. The court then quotes another provision from that agreement saying, additionally, as a material consideration in settling, and there needs to be a material consideration. So this is consideration for settling. This is part of the core reason that this is settling, not just for money, but also for this provision. As a material consideration in settling, first parties Guffrey and second parties Epstein agree that the terms of the settlement agreement are not intended to be used by any other person nor be admissible in any proceedings or case against or involving Epstein, either civil or criminal. The court then says, taken together, these provisions at least reasonably could be interpreted as meaning that Epstein and Guffrey agreed that one, neither would disclose the agreement in whole or in part to anyone except upon compulsion of legal process, and two, no one was intended to use the terms of the 2009 agreement, which of course included the release language upon which the defendant relies. This indicates to me that even though this fight might not be over, the court is strongly signaling that these provisions indicate to the court that it is unlikely that Prince Andrew will be covered by this in the future. That's how I'm reading it. That might be what the court's not putting down, that they might not be signaling that at all, but that's how I read this. I'm sure other lawyers might read it differently. But it sounds to me that the court was saying no one was intended to use the terms of the agreement. And if no one's intended to use the terms of the agreement, how can Prince Andrew say this agreement that I'm not named in, that says it's not intended to be used by anyone, is now being used by me as a shield? I don't see how you logically get there. The court next talks about the case law regarding other third parties using release agreements and says that all the law cited by Prince Andrew's side is inapposite to what's going on here. It doesn't, it doesn't lend any credence or instruction to the court at all. And then goes on to talk about the Dershowitz agreement, saying that the defendant argues that his interpretation of other potential defendants clause is the only reasonable one on the basis of the alleged events relating to Alan Dershowitz, a lawyer and retired law professor, Harvard, who Guffrey has sued in another case. Mm -hmm. Defendant asserts that Guffrey, quote, dismissed her claims against Professor Dershowitz when this release was raised to her as a potential defense. This, according to Prince Andrew, proves that the 2009 agreement released Mr. Dershowitz and by parity of reasoning, the defendant in this case, the theory apparently being that both were other potential defendants in the Florida case. The footnote to this says that the argument rests on the factual premise that the release was asserted privately on behalf of Mr. Dershowitz to Ms. Guffrey's counsel, who acquiesced in the assertion and backed off 
with respect to his proposed addition in Miscuffrey's case against Mr. Dershowitz of a new battery claim when threatened with Rule 11 sanctions. That factual premise is not supported by anything in Miscuffrey's complaint in this action. Part of the premise is supported by a recital and contradicted by another provision in a document uh, filed in the Dershowitz action of which judicial notice is now taken. In so much as judicial notice extends only to the established only to establishing the contents of that document, but not its truth. However, the only thing it establishes for purposes of this motion is that counsel for Mr. Dershowitz and Ms. Guffrey agreed that the document shall not at any time or for any purpose be construed as an admission by either party of the validity or invalidity of plaintiff's battery claim or defendant's release defense or the truth or falsity of factual predicates there too. That felt like a lot, but the court is saying that the argument defendant is making is resting on factual premises that the court is not taking because the document itself regarding the Dershowitz and Guffrey release, quote, shall not at any time or for any purpose be construed as an admission by either party. So they're saying, no, we don't know that that release was raised as a defense. And that's what swayed Guffrey from not including Dershowitz in 2009 as a defendant. Ugh, the layers that this case could unearth and the layers that prosecutors could unearth if they chose to, and they seemingly have not, it just blows my mind every time I look deeper into these cases because there is so much here. But moving on. But moving on, the court finishes this section talking about when a third-party release is appropriate and what a release even is. The court says that at the end of it all, a description of what is being released, which may be general or specific, is necessary. And that in this, there is no description of what is being released as to third parties. The court also says, strikingly, it does not say that the first parties released the second parties other than Epstein personally. From, uh, as such, from any particular claims at all, whether all claims or some specific claims, accordingly, element three of the essential elements of a release, the specification of what claims against the second parties were being released is missing as to the second parties. Accordingly, it would be reasonable, indeed, arguably unambiguously clear that the 2009 agreement did not release any claims against any second party except for Epstein himself, and that those second parties other than Epstein, who in addition to being second parties, came within the definition of other potential defendants, whatever that is. To be sure, it might be argued that Section 2 should be read as broad a broad release of all claims that the first parties had or may have had against the second parties, notwithstanding its failure to say that, but the alternative interpretation cannot be the only reasonable view of its meaning. The court said, the difficulty the problem presents, however, is relevant to the extent it demonstrates yet again that the 2009 agreement, whatever it was intended to mean, is riddled with drafting problems and ambiguities. So the court acknowledges that there are, again, two interpretations, but one of those interpretations means he's not covered at all 
and it wasn't anticipated at all. And the other interpretation doesn't mean he comes within it, but that the other interpretation is so broad that it might not even be a reasonable interpretation. That's what I'm taking away from that. The court then says the 2009 agreement cannot be said to demonstrate clearly and unambiguously that the parties intended the instrument directly, primarily, and substantially to benefit Prince Andrew. As a matter of Florida law, this court cannot rewrite the 2009 agreement to give the defendant rights where the agreement does not clearly manifest an intent to create them. And that is going to be the problem going forward, even though I think we'll see more litigation regarding this. And though I said earlier the court turned to the uh, rest of the claims, I misspoke. The court now turns to the rest of the claims, talking about the legal sufficiency of them, the two claims being battery and intentional infliction of emotional distress. And we will go through these pretty quickly. The court sets out the legal uh, principles under federal rule of civil procedure 12B6. A complaint must allege facts sufficient to state a claim for relief that is plausible on its face. So state a claim for which relief may be granted. This standard is met where the pleaded factual content, which on this motion must be assumed to be true, permits a reasonable inference that the defendant is liable for the misconduct alleged. Reasonable inference. It's, this is not a beyond a reasonable doubt standard. This is a low standard that what is the words used in the complaint are enough to allow a reasonable inference that this person can move forward at trial. They say the complaint need not anticipate potential affirmative defenses or affirmatively, affirmatively plead facts in avoidance of such defenses. It just needs to state a claim. The court goes on to talk about the fact that the complaint is legally sufficient on both the battery and IID, IIED claim under New York law. The court says the allegation that plaintiff was forced to sit on defendant's lap while he touched her is sufficient to state a battery claim under New York law, regardless of which parts of her body were touched. The court says contact is offensive if it is wrongful under all circumstances, which certainly is a reasonable inference from Guffrey's allegations. And then the court goes on to talk more in depth about finding a battery claim where it's gone beyond sitting on a lap into forced sexual conduct and forced sexual intercourse. But the court is saying, even if it's just the lap sitting, that is enough for a battery. You can't touch people that don't want to be touched. The court then says the sufficiency of plaintiff's IIED claim, again, the intentional infliction of emotional distress. Under New York law, the plaintiff must allege extreme and outrageous conduct, intent to cause or reckless disregard of a substantial probability of causing severe emotional distress, a causal connection between the conduct and the injury, and severe emotional distress. The defendant challenges that these causes of action, the battery and the IIED, are the same and they're duplicative, but does not challenge that the plaintiff adequately pled severe emotional distress. The court, in wrapping up talking about IIED, says, although she so alleges in her complaint, it should go without saying that the alleged conduct, if it occurred, reasonably could be found to have gone, quote, beyond all possible bounds of decency and is intolerable in a civilized community, end quote. Because part of Prince Andrew's allegations are not that the claim isn't sufficiently pled, which is the standard here. It's that she didn't plead that his acts were criminal. And because she didn't plead that his acts were criminal, then it's not enough for IIED. And the court is like, what we're not going to do here. 
what we're not going to do here. They then go on to talk about the defendant's contention that the plaintiff was obliged to plead sufficient facts demonstrating violation of the New York penal law is incorrect. And that is kind of layers on layers about the statute of limitations and the New York Child Victims Act that allows for an extended statute of limitations. There is a lot of argument about this. The statute of limitations will come up again a little bit later, but the statute of limitations issue may come up again as an affirmative defense because it can be used as an affirmative defense. The court reminds, though, quote, when defendants assert such a defense, it will be his burden to establish that the claims are untimely. It is not on the plaintiff to prove why they're timely. It's on the defendant to prove why they're not. The court evaluates why the claims are not duplicative because they're based on different actions. In talking about whether the battery and IIED claims are duplicative, the court says that defendant's motion misunderstands the two causes of action and then says that battery and IIED claims are routinely or do routinely proceed in tandem under New York law. I think it's funny the way the court said it because defendant argued that it's under settled law that these claims cannot coexist. And the court's like, actually, under New York law, they do regularly coexist. The defense then attacked the constitutionality of the New York Child Victims Act, and the court said that that attack is without merit. The court gave a little bit of sass on this, saying, quote, defendant is not the first litigant to advance this argument which has been rejected by every New York state and federal court to have encountered it. And it has been rejected repeatedly for good reason. The, I'm not giving a history of the New York Child Victims Act. The New York Child Victims Act is what the act is called that extended the statute of limitations for victims of child sexual abuse for bringing civil claims. Civil claim statute of limitations are different than criminal claim statute of limitations. And the defense is trying to argue that the um, the law on which this case is predicated and allowed to be brought all these years later is itself unconstitutional. And the court's like, negative ghostwriter, the pattern is full. The court says very clearly, and I think it's encouraging that the court makes such a point of it. The court says that the defendant is drawing primarily on New York cases from the 1920s and 1950s and urges that, quote, nearly 100 years of precedent make clear that the claim revival is permitted only where there is an injustice of a type that makes a plaintiff legally unable to sue. The court says whatever the historical practice may have been, the New York Court of Appeals recently made clear that the test for whether a claim revival statute, which this is because it allows claims that would have been barred by statute of limitations to be brought. So the test for whether a claim revival statute runs afoul of New York's due process clause is simply whether the revival statute is, quote, a reasonable measure to address an injustice. The court goes on to say that the CVA's limited claim revival window was a reasonable measure to address an injustice and well within the bounds of the new legal standard articulated shortly before its passage. As another judge of this court recently concluded with respect to Ms. Guffrey's pending action against Mr. Dershowitz, quote, New York court's historical skepticism of claim revival provisions appear to be just that, historical. Defense. We've moved on from the 1920s and 1950s. 
And the court goes on to list some of the reasons why. Um, and these are taken from Guffrey's opposition. When the court is citing back to you what you've said as their uh, as part of their ruling, you know you've done a good job in arguing. The court says, as Guffrey notes in her opposition, a range of legislative judgments undergrid the provision's patent constitutionality, both on its face and as applied to her claims. These include New York's comparatively restrictive limitations period for sexual abuse claims, improved understandings of victims' barriers to coming forward with these claims, and the imminent threat that abusers pose to public safety. And I think it's important to hear that the courts are saying our understanding has changed, times have changed, and we are moving forward because the law can and should evolve as we know more and is pointing that out in this ruling. The court talks about the time extension due to COVID, which we're not really going to get into. The court did not find any purchase with that argument that the extension of time to file claims, the COVID extension in New York was a problem. They then go on to the defendant asking for a more definitive statement. Essentially, the defendant saying, hey, tell me more about what happened. This complaint isn't detailed enough. The court says in the heading, defendant is not entitled to a more definitive statement. He will get the detail he seeks during discovery. You want more information? Don't worry. You can continue on to discovery. You will get more information, and so will we, because you will probably be deposed. The court says in continuing their says that Guffrey's complaint is neither unintelligible nor vague nor ambiguous. It alleges discrete incidents of sexual abuse in particular circumstances at three identifiable locations. It identifies to whom it attributes that sexual abuse. The court goes on to say defendant nevertheless holds out that he cannot reasonably prepare a response because plaintiff has not described, quote, what purported sexual contact occurred when and where the incident occurred, or the forcible compulsion she was under due to express or implied threat to the degree of specificity that he would like. The court says, while he understandably seeks more detail about the precise details of plaintiff's claims, he will be able to obtain that detail during pretrial discovery. Moreover, defendant's assertion that he cannot reasonably prepare a response to plaintiff's allegation plainly contradicts the content of his moving papers in which he denies Guffrey's allegations in no uncertain terms. You can't say that you don't understand and also say that you deny it all. Nope, nope, nope. The court has taken the opportunity to call out the defendant's BS um, on multiple occasions, saying that these arguments are not well taken by the court. The conclusion says, for the foregoing reason, defendant's motion to dismiss the complaint or for a more definitive statement is denied in all respects. Given the court's limited task of ruling on this motion, nothing in this opinion or previously in these proceedings properly may be construed as indicating a view with respect to the truth of the charges or countercharges or as to the intention of the parties in entering in the 2009 agreement. So the court makes it very clear in their conclusion, this is just with regard to the motion to dismiss. This does not, this should not be construed as indicating the court's view. Me earlier construing an indication of the court's um, beliefs. But I do think that the court has very well flushed out what the problems here are going forward. The court, again, hastened this is not to be an indicating a particular view, but I think that the court was unpersuaded by some of the arguments. 
almost annoyed that some arguments were brought that didn't seem like, why are you wasting my time with some of these arguments? This is dumb. It is well settled that some of these things are fine. That said, attorneys have to, have to bring these types of arguments in a motion to dismiss. Not the ones that can't properly be brought, but some of these are proper arguments for a motion to dismiss and saying, look, it's not constitutional. It's not this, it's not that. Because if an appeals court changes something and they don't bring the argument, then they can lose the right to appeal down the road saying, but you never raised the argument. If you never raised the argument, you can't appeal on it. That said, some of the arguments did annoy me. It seemed like some of them, the judge had some strong words for too, but the judge seems most annoyed with the drafting of the 2009 agreement. I don't think this is the last we'll see of that. To round this out, um, we should take a look at exactly what happened with Prince Andrew and his title. Um, these are both coming from the royal family's Twitter page. So with regard to the Queen's actions as of January 13th, 2022, um, and the stripping of Prince Andrew's titles, the statement from the royal family Twitter account says, royal communications with the seal with the royal approval and agreement, the Duke of York's military affiliations and royal patronages have been returned to the Queen. The Duke of York will continue not to undertake any public duties and is defending this case as a private citizen. This comes the day after this court ruling is made. And when the court or the Queen says, we'll continue not to undertake public duties, there is a 2019 statement where the Duke of York did step down a bit in his duties um, due to this case and said on November 20th, 2019, statement by His Royal Highness Duke of York, KG, it has become clear to me over the last few days that the circumstances relating to my former association with Jeffrey Epstein has become a major disruption to my family's work and the valuable work going on in the many organizations and charities that I'm a proud that I'm proud to support. Therefore, I have asked Her Majesty if I may step back from public duties for the foreseeable future. And she has given her permission. I continue to unequivocally regret my ill-judged association with Jeffrey Epstein. His suicide has left many unanswered questions, particularly for his victims. And I deeply sympathize with everyone who has been affected and wants some form of closure. I can home only hope that in time, they will be able to rebuild their lives. Of course, I am willing to help any appropriate law enforcement agency with their investigations if required. I hope that they rebuild their lives. I mean, perhaps except for Virginia Guffrey, whose motives, memory, and intentions he is questioning. Not saying that he's wrong to do so. It's a legal case. You are allowed to defend yourself. I'm just saying it seems to contradict the statement made in 2019. Just my perspective and opinion. It is clear to me watching the press coming out of England about this um, move by the queen, that this is a large, a large move. He will not be using his title as his Royal Highness and cannot, um, and has essentially been stripped of his place within the Royal family. And, you know, as a member of the working Royal family, not, you know, obviously not that he's not still her child. Apparently her favorite child, I have been told repeatedly. But with that, his military affiliations, he was still participating in after he stepped down from other public duties in 2019. So this was the last thing that he was still participating in and has been taken away. It seemed clear that 
a large number of members of the military had asked for this to happen, stating that other military officials that had these types of allegations would not have been permitted to keep their titles. Um, And it seems that that consistency or an internal consistency was requested when it came to Prince Andrew. And so he will be fighting this case as a private citizen. It means he will be paying for it. It seems that since him stepping back from public life in 2019, he has been paying for things on his own and not out of the uh, monies from the taxpayers. But it will be interesting to see what comes next. This is a big move from the royal family, but hopefully it or I wonder if it's meant to protect the image and reputation of the royal family. And hopefully, you know, if you are if you are in in the UK, let me know. If you're in England, let me know. What do you think? Do you think that the the royal family distancing themselves is a good thing? Do you think it's too little, too late? I would love to know your thoughts. I was like, whoa, that's a, a strong move right there. That's a strong move. I wonder if the hope is that this will blow over in time for the queen to celebrate her jubilee. And I don't know if it will, because this case is going to be played out very publicly. The media will have access to all, or at least most of the documents. It's going to move forward with discovery. He has to answer the lawsuit. The motion to dismiss is pre-trial or pre-answer litigation. So lawsuits filed, you can make a motion to dismiss. After the motion to dismiss is decided, denied, he will have to answer the lawsuit. I I need to look if the Southern District of New York requires answer in particularity or just a general denial and assertion of affirmative defenses. We'll see an answer to the lawsuit, and then it will continue on with litigation. I think the best bet here is for it to settle. I think that's probably what's in the best interest of Prince Andrew. I don't know if that's in the best interest of Virginia Guffrey at this point. Um, She's like, no, I've shared my story. There's nothing for me to hide. So here we go. There's nothing left for me to hide. Um, the person who stands to lose the most in all of this is Prince Andrew. Again, it is his right to defend this. He has maintained that these allegations are not true. Um, in light of everything else we've seen in this case, I, I have a hard time. Um, I have a hard time believing any of that. I think he hoped that this would never come to a civil suit. I think he hoped that with the criminal charges and him moving away from public life, that this would never um, find itself at his doorstep. And it has. And that speaks a lot to the fortitude of Virginia Guffrey to continue to tell her story um, as a survivor of Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell. And it, it has to be tremendously difficult to continue on. The questions I still have will be statute of limitations. They didn't argue in this motion to dismiss jurisdiction at all. So I guess everybody's just ceding to jurisdiction in New York is like, yeah, I guess we're fine. Um, Cause that would have needed to come up and it didn't and the courts ruled. So jurisdiction now, but statute of limitations will be um, an interesting one. I think that the revival act applies. I think that they will find that this is within the statute of limitations. And then it will be back to that 2009 agreement and whether the court interprets it. I don't think that agreement, from what we've seen in this ruling, I don't see any provision that allows for Andrew to use it as a shield. Like it's not, he's not a party to the agreement. So I don't know how he would be able to benefit from that when he's not named as a beneficiary. And then this will go forward to potentially a civil trial in New York in the same uh, district 
where the Maxwell case went, and it seems that where the Dershowitz case had went as well. I have not pulled up that case. If you are interested in the Dershowitz case, let me know, and we will take a look into it as well. And with that, it is time. I was hoping to maybe have a shorter episode, but no, but no, never, no, never. I should just stop thinking that I'm ever going to be brief about anything. Thank you for hanging with me till the end. Thank you for being a Lonard. And if you want to let me know what you think of this episode, you can leave a review on the iTunes store or iTunes, Apple podcasts in your app or on the web. And you can tell me on social at the Emily D Baker on Twitter and on Instagram, and I will see you in the next one. So may you be hydrated. We're adding to it. How long will this be next year? I don't know. May you be hydrated. May your Wi-Fi be strong. May your toilet paper be plentiful. May your family be well. And may the odds be ever in your favor. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being a Lonard. And thank you for caring about the facts. And sometimes enjoying the fuckery. I'll see you in the next one, friend. <laughs>